From Eyewitness News, this is Newsmakers. The push to move when you vote. Proposed legislation would move primary day earlier to get Rhode Island in compliance with federal law. But when and how will it affect voter turnout? Our guest this week on Newsmakers, Rhode Island Secretary of State, Nellie Gorbea. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Joining me on the program, Eyewitness News reporter Ted Nisi. Secretary Gorbea, it's good to have you on the program. Welcome yeah, back. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This is great. Let's start where we start at the top mm -hmm. of the show. Uh, primary day. Uh, one of your bills would move it earlier. Right now, as everyone knows, primaries in September, just six weeks between primary day and the general election. It looks like the General Assembly has settled on moving it to the day after Labor Day. Are you okay with that? I'm okay with that. That was part of the compromise. Uh, there was a lot more skittishness about moving it into August because it's not just about that one day. It's the entire ca calendar. So when are nominations? Uh, when do people get their signatures done? All of that would have to move a little bit. And so it puts it into the session. There was a lot of concern about is, is the focus going to be there? It's like a lot to put on the last days of the session. So they said, you know, is there any other way that we can do this? My, my staff worked through a number of calendars going forward, uh, and, and, and basically but we're doing what we're all going back to school. You know, parents is, are very busy at is. that time. Are you worried that that's a mm -hmm. lot to throw, you know, at people to get out to the polls? And I don't think so. I think, I mean, this is the primary to begin with, so it's not the general election. The general election gets a lot more people out. This is the primary. I think that primary voters tend to be very self-motivated, and my whole job is to make sure that our men and women in uniform, which is why we're pro proposing this, are able to get their ballots to and from us, uh, or, or from us to and back to us, yeah, right. uh, in time to get their votes counted. And so that was really the crux of moving the Explain date. Explain that. You have 40, so what is it, 45 days? 45 days. days. Federal law requires that all men and women in uniform and overseas voters are able to get their ballots at least 45 days before the general election. And because our date was so far into September, uh, the current date that we have right now in the law, we needed to change it. And so I don't want to do it just for next year, which is really where the problem was, but rather to do something a little bit more structural to make sure that this doesn't happen going into the future. And so by moving it just one more week up, which is uh, eight, eight weeks before uh, the, the general, uh, we can solve this. Uh, Secretary, I do remember, mm -hmm. to Tim's point, you said to us a few years ago after you'd gone through your very hard-fought primary from 2014, mm -hmm. uh, you thought this w having the primary in this time of year mm -hmm. at all was a problem. You said it's hard for, you, you said as a, work, as a working mother, you said with your kids going back to school and everything, it was really hard to be campaigning through August into early September. Uh, but you say you're okay with this. Did you, did you make a pitch for a significantly earlier one, or is that just a dead letter in the assembly? No, no. So my original legislation was, you know, as after, you know, you, you, you air concerns and then you hear back from people and legislation is the art of compromise, right? And so you hear from a number of people. I have that concern as a working mom. Um, people had other concerns about the August dates and we came up with September 8th, which I think is a reasonable compromise. Do you see yourself next year uh, having another piece of legislation to move it back into August and, and sort of inch it back? Further, no, I think at this point, it? you know, you'd have to go through a few cycles so that people get a sense of what it feels like. Um, changing elections really, you know, from one cycle to the other, I think is very disorienting to people. So I think at this point, this is our best proposal at this point in space and time. We're going to go with it, and I think it's going to be fine. Um, the uh, political analyst Ron Brownseed had an interesting article earlier this week saying uh, that 
forecasters on Republican and Democratic forecasters think there could be a tsunami, their <laughs> words, of voter turnout next yes. year because passions are so high right now on all sides. Um, you've been pushing for a while to add in-person early voting where you can you have a mm -hmm. formal system to go to City Hall, cast your ballot early, etc. There's always different debates about how many days mm -hmm. or whatnot. Right now that's bottled up in committee. I've heard in previous years skepticism concerns mm -hmm. in the legislature. Uh, are you concerned that if they don't act on early voting this year in the legislature, it's going to be harder to deal with that high turnout next year? I have expressed my concern directly to both the Senate President and the Speaker of the House that if this bill does not happen, uh, we are very much opening the doors to somewhere in the next cycle there being massive problems. What did they say to you? Well, they say that they're looking at it and that they have concerns from different members. I said, you know what? The clerks want this because they don't want to have lines out the door or have a problem. Uh, the, the process that we have right now, which is called emergency mail ballots, is very paper intensive. What I'm proposing is you just do a regular polling location and you offer voters Saturday and Sunday before that election so that for four hours on a Saturday, four hours on a Sunday, if you can't make it during your regular work week, you can go in and vote. And that deals with the demand. So I am very concerned and I have expressed those concerns to the leadership. I'm hoping that they will still take action in the last few uh, days of the session because uh, I, I am very concerned about uh, the possibility of there being a breakdown in the system come 2020. I wanted, so let's talk more about that because I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure there'll be some people home listening and say, well, you know, Secretary, yeah, nobody likes waiting in line, but is that really a, a huge crisis to stand in a line on election day? It's not just about the crisis or, or, or the length of waiting in the line. I, I, and by the way, I don't think that you should wait more than 20 minutes, which is really what the national standard is. It's also about the fact that you are not actually casting your ballot into the machine. When you cast your ballot into the machine, if you have a mistake on the ballot, it spits it out and you know, and you can correct that mistake. Or you can say, you know what, I don't have time, I'm just gonna let it go. You make that decision. When you go through an emergency mail ballot process, because the board has to actually verify that this is a real voter and checks the signature, there's a very involved process. Once that person is approved as a real voter, then the ballot goes into a, a, a pile because they don't want to see who, how people vote. If that ballot gets spit out by the machine, it you may not vote. Or, or as we reported, it gets yep. remade at the Board of Elections on Election Day, and mm -hmm. we saw a spike of remade ballots. Uh, yep, which in is the last not where one. you want it. You want the voter to have control over that ballot, not somebody else. All right. So, what what is the headwind you're facing? The Speaker and the Senate President said, uh, you know, we'll we'll think about it or whatever, yeah. and and they have concerns from uh, their membership. What, what, what are those concerns? I would ask the speaker directly that, um, I and or the or the Senate President. Um, you know, well, you have I to know address change, those concerns, you know, so, so you're not you're not hearing what they are. So yeah, you no. Can, so I I keep talking to people who want this. They want the voters you want probably this. Talk to other the people. clerks. <laughs> no, I know. So I'm trying to figure out where is this opposition because I'm not seeing it in that chamber. As you know, the state house can be sort of interesting that way. <laughs> yes. um, the one thing that I can come up with is this fear of change that there might be a change that might upset certain races or my own race or things like that. I don't think those are valid concerns when we're talking about elections functioning properly. Well, isn't one of the concerns that a lot could happen in the two weeks, if it's two weeks, leading up to an election? I don't, that but, could change but, but your that mind? Could, yeah, well, uh, how many people voted, you know, and then have after the election had second thoughts? 
That's 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 a singular moment in a, individual voters. I'm talking about the the integrity of elections, making sure that elections happen as smoothly and as in control of that voter having control over their ballot as much as possible. It's the same reason why I put stamps on mail ballots so that the voter has the power to send that ballot back in the mail, not have to give it to anybody else or have to come into to city or town hall. All right, let's stick one, with, one other question on, uh, or I had on, one other question on 2020. There's been so much talk about election security, technology, mm -hmm. hacking, cybersecurity, all, that whole stew of issues, and it, 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 it's so complex. But just, just to put a fine point on it, is there any sign that there's been any effort to hack into our voting databases and systems in Rhode Island? So there's a wide range of descriptions of what uh, people, are, you know, there's penetration, there's hacking, there's, there's tinkering, there's all sorts of things. What I can tell Rhode Island voters and you all very straightforwardly is there has been no uh, successful penetration of our systems. There is every day in, in Rhode Island, in Massachusetts, everywhere, there are attempts to try to get into our systems. And we have to be constantly vigilant, and we have been under my watch, to make sure that those uh, attempts are, are not successful. And it goes beyond the hardware and the software. It goes to training my own staff on how to recognize phishing emails. We have an ongoing anti-phishing email uh, training program going on where we review with employees, like, hey, you clicked on this. You can't be clicking on stuff. This is why. So Because it doesn't matter. It's not just the elections system that gets, uh, uh, you know, sort of the people will try to penetrate, it will be through most likely something like a phishing email, as we saw. Is that know, how before. you know there are attempts? Is it primarily through phishing emails, or have you seen other attempts? We, we, we get a lot of information from the Department of Homeland Security, which we have a partnership with uh, in terms of what are other states experiencing. And, and so uh, there is a real collaborative effort to share knowledge on what people are trying to do. And there's, and there's alerts that happen on a almost, you know, weekly basis telling us like okay these are things that we're seeing uh, in, in places so that we can all take precautions. Alright let's tackle this one. You have a bill that would withhold birth dates of mm -hmm. registered voters from lists that your office has traditionally provided when requested. You have argued this is to help protect mm -hmm. voters from having their identity stolen but do you admit that it will be at the cost of making it harder for journalists to continue to do their job of you know, looking for dead people on voter rolls or looking for people who are registered in more than one state. In other words, be a watchdog. I have made elections integrity and accessibility cornerstones of my administration. From the beginning, uh, whether it be purchasing new voting systems, you know, securing our, our software and our hardware, Everything that I've done has improved the accountability, the integrity of election systems. So I do take uh, exception with that characterization of, of what we're doing. What we are doing no, with no, this No, no, that wasn't my question. My uh -huh. question was, do you mm -hmm. admit that by, if this law passes, it'll be, yeah. it'll make it harder for us no. to... I don't. How, how is that? <laughs> because, so you gave one example, so uh, people who might be deceased. Well, you have, we are giving out the year of birth. So you can look at people's year of birth and then their names. And you can still do a lot of analysis but with the information we're providing. But the information that we're keeping out is also, so one of the th really challenging things as Secretary of State is to balance, yes, we want the office to be held accountable, absolutely. I've done everything I can to make sure that we have open and transparent government in Rhode Island. But at the same time, technology is such that that full date of birth 
is really valuable to identity thieves, to marketing companies, to all sorts of people, but particularly identity thieves. And people are very concerned. I, you know, this is one of those things where everywhere I go, Rhode Islanders are thanking me for protecting their privacy and their identity. All right, but Rhode Islanders also have an interest in making sure that the fourth estate journalism is uh, able to do their job. And I should make an important disclosure. I'm a board member of the New England First Amendment Coalition, which met with you Mm -hmm. this month, I think, on this issue. I was not part of that meeting. Look, assuming all your intentions are good, what happens when a different Secretary of State takes the office like we saw in Texas with David Whitley Mm -hmm. in Texas and they attempt to purge the voter rolls and reporters years down the road we can't check that out because of the law that you put in the books was passed does that concern you no so so what concerns me is that you're seeing it that way because it doesn't do that at all you can first of all the Texas Secretary of State of course was caught right Mm -hmm. so we are talking about something but more than anything I want to make sure that I leave government in an even better place regardless I want myself to be held accountable I want the next secretary to be held accountable you can hold accountable the Secretary of State and the list uh, uh, voter list maintenance process with year of birth you don't need that month and the day so that is still, and by the way, I have made it accessible. The full date of birth is accessible to be looked at in my office on a terminal so you can actually sort and do all sorts of research there. What you can't do is just walk away with 780,000 dates and of I birth. And I haven't done Islanders. that type of data yeah. uh, dive, but I've talked to mm-hmm. reporters who have and yep. said that going to the terminal would make it very difficult for the 1,000, mm-hmm. 2,000 names, and it might be an inaccurate. But, uh, but Look. listen to that, 1,000 to 2,000 names out of 700. No, but actually, we did run the numbers. We checked out, if you just do year of birth and the first name, the last name, the middle initial, all of the information, the number of questions that you have, the John Smiths, two John Smiths in 1943, for example, that you get are about uh, 2,300 out of 780,000 people who's now you're not putting at risk of identity theft. And so you have to, in these positions, balance out, make sure that you, yes, absolutely, I believe in the press providing uh, sort of that that counterpunch to be able to look at the information, to hold the elected officials accountable. But we also have to recognize that we're in a different technological age. We're overdue for a break, but I I just have to ask, you know, apart from the substance of this, which I think you Mm -hmm. guys just litigated, uh, this has become, it seems like a bit of a political black eye for your office. After a pretty successful first term, you're overwhelmingly reelected, sued by the Projo over Mm -hmm. this, a lot of chatter about it. The bill uh, was put back into committee. Uh, Do you wish you'd handled it differently in retrospect? Not at all. I believe that I am holding true to what I told Rhode Islanders, is that I would make government work for them. Part of making government work for them is to make sure that the media has access to the voter list and the information they need to make this office accountable. You can do that with date of birth. Um, And actually, I am thanked everywhere I go. And I have the support of the ACLU. I have the support of Common Cause. I have the support of Phil West, for that matter, on these matters because People understand that the world is different and government needs to adapt and protect Rhode Islanders at the same time as uh, we need to make sure that you can, in the media, hold government accountable. All right, we're going to take a break on the program. Our guest, obviously, is Rhode Island Secretary of State Nellie Gorbea. When we come back, we'll touch on politics 2020 and 2022. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers.
Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White, or welcome back. To my left is Ted Nisi, and our guest this week is Secretary of State Nellie Gorbea. Secretary, without making an endorsement, um, I'm just wondering if there's anyone you're interested in or, or watching closely in a run for president in 2020. So I'm still getting through the couple dozen people who are running for president of the Democratic Party. So no, not yet. I mean, and also, um, you know, I want to do the research myself. I don't want to just look at it through the filter lens, the, the filter that the media has of like, oh, this is the most cool Democrat right now in the race, you know, because that changes from week to week. Do you know any of so, them or have you ever met um, any of them? Yeah, sure, of course. You can't be in Democratic politics uh, and, and not meet some of them. So um, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, let me ask you about a different election then, since you, you didn't filibuster <laughs> us on that, which is great. Let's talk about 2022. Well, uh, wait, I have other things to talk about. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, something else. Um, look, I, brass tacks, we all, mm -hmm. you know, we, mm -hmm. we always are looking ahead. Uh, Governor Raimondo is term limited, and your name is at the top of all the short lists of people who could run for governor, seek the Democratic nomination next time. Is that something you'll be considering? You know, I am working very hard uh, to really finish this term. I think what people really want is not elected officials who are looking at what's next, but rather what's in front of them right now. And so I, I am thrilled and I am very uh, humbled by the fact that there are people talking about me in a potential for that run, but right now it's too early. Are you ruling it out? I'm not ruling anything out. There's all sorts of things that I'm not ruling out. But, um, but no, but I have to say, it's been a real joy to be able to deliver to Rhode Islanders a government that works for them and to show that we can do things well in Rhode Island. We're a national leader on elections and cybersecurity. That's fantastic. Uh, just this week, we were sh given a shout out by the Election Assistance Commission in, in one of their slides. Um, Would you run for this office again if there wasn't a term limit? Mm -hmm. You know, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I think that term limits are good in that they bring a different set of eyes into things. If you're going to talk about sort of, you know, holding people accountable, certainly having a changeover helps with that transparency and looking at things that other people would do differently. So not, not necessarily. So you're not going to put in a bill to end term limits for no. at least <laughs> when, uh, no. Just one final question on it. We won't waste too much okay. time. But uh, when do you think, uh, if you were to contemplate that, you'd have to actually think hard about it and, and actually make decisions to be to be able to run that race the way you'd want to? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, I, I really, so much of my time is focused on making sure that 2020 runs well. We just announced, for example, uh, that we will be rebuilding the central voter registration system. That's going to take a lot of time and effort from my office, for example. Uh, we've hired, after an RFP process with four bids, uh, a Pawtucket-based uh, company, Stonewall Solutions. Um, and we're excited. The boards of canvassers who are part of this process, along with the Board of Elections, everybody's very excited to make this happen. But it's a lot to have happen before 2020. Well, let me ask you about last year's election briefly, mm -hmm. uh, then. Uh, you made it your former, uh, uh, well, I don't know, mentor might be the wrong word, but uh, who mm -hmm. hired you, former Secretary of State Matt Brown, mm -hmm. who ran in the Democratic primary for governor and who you worked for years mm -hmm. ago. Uh, he primaried Governor Raimondo, and you chose to remain neutral while mm -hmm. the other uh, statewide mm -hmm. office holders endorsed the incumbent mm -hmm. Democratic governor. I would say there was some displeasure <laughs> among the governor's uh, allies, aides, and advisors about that decision. Why did you make that decision, and have there been lingering hard feelings over that? No, I mean, I, no. I mean, in politics, uh, I don't think if you're if you're really good at this stuff, you don't have lingering hard feelings for the most part. Um, I will say that. Um, I learned my lesson from the Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton primary. Um, I took a stand there very early on for Hillary, which I supported, uh, and that gave pause. I think that 
the role of Secretary of State because it has uh, some oversight over a piece of the elections puzzle uh, does give people pause. And for people who don't understand that I'm not running the election, if they see me endorsing people uh, as Secretary of State, uh, then they might think that, well, somehow that the, the system is rigged. Then why, so did you walk, then why did you walk the district for Speaker Mattiello just before uh, his very hard fought election? So that was very different. Uh, he was just walking in the district and he asked me, could I come and meet some people? And, and that's a very different thing than having an endorsement uh, process. You didn't endorse you, him at the time? No, I was simply walking with him and talking with voters, listening to what they were but saying. Come on, about the voters are going to endorse. Did yeah, you right. walk with Steve Frias yes. too? Uh, nobody didn't ask me either. So, and actually, you know, I think that within reason, I think people expect certain things. Um, I, you know, I don't think that many Republicans would expect to, you know, ask me to walk with them. Um, but no, I don't think I don't think that was a, a problem. I think in the end, it strengthened the integrity of that primary process and that election. And I think it was a positive. Have you brought that up to him now that your bills seem to be stalling out <laughs> yeah. in the General Assembly? Well, a lot so of people are abandoning him. Yeah, no, um, not really. I mean, it's you know um, the bills uh, that I have uh, going forward, I think, um, are important bills. I'm hoping that both the Speaker and the Senate President, who has a very important role to play as well, will support uh, the, the measures that I put forward uh, going. Something I've done some reporting on, uh, you've made protecting the state's archives a, a priority and you have a snazzy um, proposal, a proposed building that would be across the street from the State House. Last time I interviewed you on this, um, you estimated the cost, I think you called it back of an envelope mm -hmm. cost is $52 million. Any indication there will be any money we're taping this on a Friday. Mm -hmm. Sounds like the state budget's going to be tackled tonight. That there's going to be any money in the state budget for the archives? Yeah, I don't think so. We're right now um, in the process of the governor has asked us also to look at the Department of Transportation building and whether that would be a suitable space. So we are going to be doing that over the next uh, few months. The uh, whole building? No, a uh, piece of it. So, okay, so Rideout so would doing, still be in there, and you no, don't. no, no. Rideout would move out, and uh, then uh, there would be some other. But use I know of you that. don't love that. So, no, I mean, I, I think I think a new building is going to be more cost effective. But you know what? I'm a person who actually believes in listening to others, when, even when they differ with you on opinions, and say, okay, uh, let's go ahead and and try this out and, and examine what that might cost and what it might look like. Uh, I'm not going to just say no because I don't you know like it. So, so what happens? Uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the meantime, you don't have a permanent yeah. place for the archives. No, in the meantime, you know, yes, we have one more year on this option uh, that we have for a leased office space. I mean, we can't just move it over to another permanent facility, I don't think, in the sense that um, we, we, would, we don't want to be moving those precious documents uh, repeatedly. So I believe that we're on a path to find a permanent solution. And that's a really important path to be on for, for our documents that date back to the founding of our country and the founding of our, our state. A lot of still a lot of uh, concern about the coming 2020 U.S. Census right. matters, hugely mm -hmm. for Rhode Island, not only because we could lose a congressional district in the state, but also federal funding and getting mm -hmm. an accurate count of who actually lives here, et cetera. Um, there's fights at the federal level with the Trump administration over the citizens question, et cetera. Where's your head? At? Are you concerned yeah. right now about the Senate sort of where uh, the census? Where's your head at about that right now? No, absolutely. I think everybody in Rhode Island should be concerned about the census. We have to make sure that we get every person living in Rhode Island counted in the census. The census was not meant to be an exercise to determine who are the citizens or who um, you know are, are 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 X number of people. It was meant to be everybody counted. Going back to the Constitution. 
It was everybody get counted. So we need to make sure that that happens. I have been in a lot of meetings, a lot of conversations. Everywhere I go in the community, I talk about the importance of getting counted in the census. You are uh, probably the most prominent Latina uh, mm -hmm. public official in Rhode Island, and uh, you have deep ties in the Hispanic political community. Uh, is the concern, uh, is it real? Do you hear about this? Is this being discussed mm -hmm. a lot? Do you think it really will affect, a, will it be a small number of people who maybe don't do it, or do you think it could be widespread? Because that is the community yeah. you hear the most concern about. Yeah, no, it is, because it has been, thanks to you know the president, uh, in the limelight the most, in terms of attacks and, and all sorts of things. So. Uh, no, we are talking about it in the Latino community, and, and you know it's interesting to note that it was the growth of the Hispanic community in the census in the last two censuses that gave us that edge to have that second congressional district. So it is in all Rhode Islanders' best interest to have every single person, including every single person in the Latino community, be counted as part of Census 2020. We are having those conversations. We're trying to figure out how to best get those messages across. And, and I'm, I'm prepared for like a real roll up your sleeves effort uh, for Census 2020. We have about a minute left. Conventional wisdom is it's when, not if, Rhode Island will legalize pot. Do you support mm -hmm. or oppose the legalization of recreational marijuana? So at this point, I think, um, I will say that I, I support uh, the legalization. I, I think that there is a move across our country that would make it hard for us to not have it legalized here. Having said that, Colorado just announced a billion dollars in tax revenue. Um, I would want to make sure that any taxes are are very much directed, not necessarily at a general fund, but really are targeted so that we can deal with addiction. I think the one good thing about um, where we are now with regards to addiction and drugs is that there's a lot more consciousness raising, that this is, you know, addiction is not necessarily a crime. It's something that people are, are, are subject to. And, and, and so we need to have services available for people who do end up getting addicted to get out of that addiction. All right, Rhode Island Secretary of State Nellie Gorbea, thank you so much for joining us on the program. If you missed any of it, it is online, WPRI.com. Do not forget to subscribe to our podcast. You can find it through iTunes. For Ted Nisi, I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers.